and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. It's Friday morning on March 27th here in Seoul, where I'm sitting, but it's the evening of Thursday, March 26th in Washington, D.C., where, joining me via Skype, is my guest today, John Pfeffer, to talk about North Korea, U.S. relations, and much more. Welcome on the show, John. Thank you for having me. John Pfeffer is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, a progressive think tank based in Washington, D.C. He is a prolific author and widely published, and I encourage you all to check out his website at johnpfeffer.com. We'll share the link in the show notes for a list of recent articles and details about his novels and other books. John has been an Open Society Fellow and a Pantech Fellow in Korean Studies at Stanford University. He has worked as an International Affairs Representative in Eastern Europe and East Asia for the American Friends Service Committee. He has studied in England and Russia, lived in Poland and Japan, and traveled widely throughout Europe and Asia. Welcome on the show, and thanks for joining me today, John. Thanks again. I'm looking forward to it. So there's so much to talk about with you because you are so prolific, but I want to start with your one-man show that you put on in Washington last year called Next Stop North Korea. In it, you play a range of different characters from a Scottish tour guide speaking uh, in a terrible brogue specializing in tours to North Korea to your own self talking about your own experiences up there uh, through to a North Korean defector or refugee now making a life for himself outside North Korea. Uh, Is it okay if we share the YouTube link with our listeners? Absolutely. Great, we'll put that up on the show notes. So what prompted you to make that show? What prompted me was the decision a couple of years ago by the State Department to, to make it more difficult for Americans in particular to visit North Korea. And uh, this was before the um, kind of rapprochement between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And uh, it occurred to me that um, I could, of course, bring audiences to North Korea theatrically. Um, and that even though I myself hadn't been to North Korea for about two decades. Uh, many of the stories of, uh, of my trips there, uh, as well as some stories from other people I had talked to more recently, would provide a kind of window onto a society that, well, very few people in the United States have, have visited. And as a result of the State Department directive, very few were going to visit um, in the future. So that, that's the real thing that prompted me to, to put it on stage. What's the message or messages that you want people to take away from having seen it? Well, the first one is that, you know, North Korea is often presented as a kind of um, one-dimensional place, potentially two-dimensional. Mm. And I really wanted to provide a kind of three-dimensional view of the country. It has many features that are, of course, detestable. It's human rights uh, situation. But in the end, uh, you know, the people of North Korea uh, live their lives as best they can. Um, and they face innumerable challenges. Uh, they have uh, some of the same, um, they face some of the same pitfalls, but they also, you know, have some of the great uh, pleasures in life as well, uh, just like everyone else. And uh, I wanted to kind of present the full spectrum of uh, or as much of that spectrum as mm-hmm. possible in a one-hour show. Have you ever traveled as a tourist to North Korea? No, in fact, I, I hadn't. Um, and, you know, I had gone to North Korea under the auspices of the American Friends Service Committee, which is a, an NGO, and we had several projects in North Korea, agricultural projects, providing both expertise and, in some cases, inputs to the farms. So whenever we visited, we were visiting the farms. We were also uh, making... Uh, visits to a variety of different ministries and organizations with the idea of setting up um, exchanges, uh, medical exchanges, uh, architecture exchanges, if possible. So I'd never gone through the kind of uh, the tourism um, route. However, uh, my wife has and certainly many of my uh, colleagues um, have. And so I, I was pretty familiar with what the routine was. And I decided to um, to do this because, of course, I wanted the audience to feel as if it was going to North Korea. I wanted them to feel as the, the same kind of butterflies in the stomach, if you will, uh, that uh, the people do when they're when they're being briefed in Beijing. And this is uh, also, you know, a kind of uh, a well-worn theatrical device, uh, a way of engaging the audience, making the audience 
uh, feel as if they're actually participating. Right. And uh, your own three trips, as you mentioned, there were for the American French Service Committee. And so you were uh, providing inputs and, and, and uh, basically it was a kind of aid. Is that how you would put it? Yeah. I mean, it was um, similar to work that AFSC has done in other parts of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And AFSC has generally worked in places that have uh, kind of adversarial or at least difficult relationships with the United States. We're not actually competing uh, with U.S. official aid in, in those countries. And we're doing so, you know, AFSC is a peace organization. So the uh, the overall goal is to reduce tensions between the United States and North Korea. And these exchanges were designed to really bring together people, uh, the ones we were doing both in the agricultural realm and the medical realm, uh, were designed to bring together people who had specialized knowledge, who could share that knowledge um, on an equal basis without really any discussions of politics, at least explicitly, and really give uh, folks on both sides an opportunity to see how just ordinary people go about their professional lives. And in fact, you did say in the show that you were there to bring the U.S. and North Korea closer together. Do you feel that uh, that your uh, trips achieved that? or that, Well, no, more broadly, do you feel that the work of the AFSC did that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the AFSC developed a a relationship of more or less trust, um, and I say more or less only because you know it, it's difficult in, in trying circumstances to establish perfect trust uh, across cultural and political barriers. But I think that over the course of several decades, the AFSC has uh, built up this this relationship of trust uh, with folks in North Korea at all levels of society, in a way that has both broken down stereotypes uh, about who Americans are uh, and what Americans do, and of course, broken down stereotypes about who North Koreans are, uh, in addition, of course, to providing, I think, very useful um, inputs that the folks in North Korea appreciated a great deal. Is the AFSC still doing that work? It is, uh, although you know the sanctions regime does put a lot of um, uh, a lot of strain on any kind of provision of inputs to, to North Korea. Um, so it's still operating, but under very difficult conditions. Now, in the uh, you said you've been there three times, but in the show you kind of concatenate all your experiences into one trip. But is it otherwise uh, accurate? Did all those things actually happen to you? Yes. Uh, all of them happened. I did kind of rearrange some things just to make it theatrically make sense. And that, so, as you said, I, I took three trips and boiled it down to one. Uh, I also moved uh, a couple of locations. So, for instance, uh, there's a conversation I have with someone from uh, who worked with a unification church-affiliated organization. In reality, that conversation took place in South Korea. But for the purposes of the of the play, you know, it, it made more sense because everything was taking place within North Korea to transpose that conversation there. But other than that, other than a couple of uh, examples of transposition, everything that that I talk about in the play actually happened. In one moment, you and your wife argue about whether it's right or not to bow to the statue of Kim Il Sung and to his embalmed body. Uh, you end up bowing. What was that experience like? And could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Well, you know, all, all folks who have gone to North Korea are familiar with um, this challenge. And, you know, you, you, when you go to any country, you are expected, especially if you're there in an official capacity, to observe the cultural norms of that country. Um, so, for instance, you know, I, I remember being in, in Thailand once in, in Bangkok in a movie theater. And before the, the show began, the king came on as a, you know, as a little video of the king and everybody stood up. And so, well, I mean, I stood up too, you know, because it's otherwise you feel like an idiot. Uh, it was unexpected and, you know, it's, but it's part of Thai society to show reverence to the, to the king. Um, so anyone who arrives in North Korea is well aware that you take that first trip to, to uh, the now two statues. Um, and you lay your flowers and down before the statues and you bow. But, you know, going into that situation, I was typically American, if you will. I'm not going to, you know, bow down to anybody. Um, this is not part of my tradition. This is not something I can countenance. But of course, you know, I had to get over that. Um, I might have felt uncomfortable doing it. 
but uh, it really was necessary, uh, necessary to show that I wasn't there to um, just to thumb my nose at, uh, at North Korean society or culture. I was there to be as respectful as possible. You know, obviously there were there were certain lines I wasn't going to cross. I mean, I wasn't uh, I wasn't going to you know do an interview with the North Korean newspaper and give praise to uh, North Korean leadership. Uh, but I wasn't asked to do that. But uh, but in other respects, you know, it, it was necessary. I think to to observe protocol while there. Yeah, and even while um, you know, you, as you say, you, you're maintaining protocol and etiquette and following the norms and customs. But in your mind and in the show, uh, you call him a, a murderous dictator. That's absolutely correct. And you know, I wasn't going into this situation with a blank slate in terms of my knowledge of North Korean history. I was quite well aware of what Kim Il Sung. Uh, did to achieve power, what he did to consolidate power, his ruthless purging of dissent and dissent within the party. I'm not even talking about dissent outside the party, because that, right. of course, ruthless as well. But, uh, but the the you know the the very familiar um, revolution devouring its children. I mean, that took place in North Korea as well, and Kim Il Sung presided over it. So I was well aware of his his bloody hands. Would you extend that uh, description to his uh, son and grandson? Uh, not yes, but not as much. I mean, uh, I think both uh, Kim Jong Il and Kim Jong Un are responsible for their own atrocities of one sort or another. I think they pale in comparison, in some respect, to uh, what Kim Il Sung did as part of you know, the creation of the North Korean state. Many people, of course, would put all of the deaths in the famine years mm. in the foot of uh, Kim Jong Il. And I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, uh, I know that there is a popular argument that uh, Kim Jong-il is responsible for kind of cordoning off uh, parts of the, the country. Right, a kind of triage, geographic triage. Exactly. Um, but I actually wouldn't necessarily go that far. I mean, perhaps someday we'll have access to the archives and we can you know, find out more detail about this. But um, I think more what happened during the the you know, arduous March years was that the North Korean state was caught uh, completely unprepared for this, so unprepared that it, it did something extraordinary, which was appeal to the international community for assistance, something that a, a society that governs itself by Juche, it's hard to imagine, would would do as a, as a matter of course. And unprepared, it decided to fall back on a kind of core strategy and that core strategy was essentially to allow all the parts of the country to do as best they can uh, in very difficult circumstances. And so uh, those parts of the country that were nearer to China obviously did much better in terms of being able to maintain trade, both illicit and not illicit. Uh, those areas that were in the interior and did not have access um, did not fare so well. Now, was that a conscious triage? No, I think that was part of a general principle of, well, Juche. Uh, each of the constituent parts of North Korea would have to fend for itself, for themselves. Now, you were there, as you said, 1998 was your, your first trip. So that's uh, during that arduous March period. And in the show, you point out that although Pyongyang was dark at night during your visits, the mausoleum of Kim Il-sung was always brightly lit. And that gives me an excuse to ask what your assessment is of how the North Korean state chooses to allocate scarce resources. It's a nation that was at that time constantly under-resourced, and even now it, there's still a portion of the population that doesn't have access to sufficient food, uh, from what we you know consider by global standards sufficient food, and where much agricultural work is done by hand due to the shortages of fuel or equipment or spare parts for that equipment, and yet there are always sufficient resources to keep statues and the mausoleum clean and well-maintained, and of course we haven't even talked about the nuclear weapons program and the missiles programs. What do you make of that, and, and and what's to blame for this skewing of priorities? Yeah, I mean, it's appalling. Um, the budget priorities in North Korea are disgusting. It's not possible morally to to justify the apportioning of resources, not just you know maintenance of, of memorials, but basically for the sustenance of a very small uh, ruling class in the country. And that has essentially remain the case today, although North Korea is better resourced today than it was in, say, the mid-90s. But 
Uh, but still, the budget priorities are appalling because, of course, the government has decided that a nuclear program is more important, for instance, than assure, ensuring that the population is better fed um, on average. But I would also point out that budget priorities in many countries are skewed along the same lines, perhaps not in so dramatic a fashion as in North Korea. But here in Washington, D.C., one would, of course, point to the maintenance of some very grand uh, buildings and statues that are always well lit, uh, tremendous amount of resources that go into maintaining Washington, D.C., as a showcase capital for the United States. And yet, uh, Washington, D.C. is also home to some of the worst uh, statistics for child mortality, for hunger, homelessness, because this city, too, is extraordinarily divided between a wealthy uh, wealthy class of people that maintain the, the business of Washington, D.C., and a much poorer and largely African-American population. Uh, is that, are those budget priorities acceptable? Well, no. Uh, of course, we live in a democratic society, so ultimately it is uh, the people at large who are, um, who can be, who can be blamed for that. It's not the decision of an autocrat or even necessarily a, a ruling uh, group of, of individuals. So the responsibility for our skewed budget priorities here in the United States, uh, I'm afraid, are more evenly distributed among the population. Uh, now, you also talk about surveillance during your trips. Uh, specifically, you tell a story in which you and your wife walk out of and away from your hotel for quite a distance to be able to have a, a private, or so you think, private uh, conversation about your experience in North Korea. Could you briefly share that story? Sure. So as again, every, anyone who's been to North Korea is well aware that uh, the surveillance is quite extensive. Uh, ex the surveillance of foreigners uh, in hotels, of course, always accompanied by a minder, takes careful note, either physically or probably in their memory of what you have said and what you've done. Um, the surveillance, of course, of the population as a whole is, is also quite significant, um, but uh, that's not germane necessarily to this story. Uh, but my wife and I were very well aware of this surveillance, and so we were very careful not to say anything untoward in our conversations in the hotel or when we were in private. After many days, we became frustrated at not being able to talk to each other uh, and only, say, communicating with scribbled notes here and there. So we decided one night to stay up past midnight and walk out uh, of the hotel. And we were in the Potongang Hotel, which is along the Potong River, as, as Korean speakers would guess. And we walked about a mile away. Um, and it was completely dark. I mean, there were no overhead lights. It was, there was nothing really except the moon. And we got about a mile away uh, up the river, and there was nothing, nothing around us. And we finally, you know, had this opportunity to share our um our innermost feelings, and uh, and be frank, uh, absolutely frank about our um, evaluation of experiences there so far. And uh, thus purged, <laughs> we walked back along the river, got back into bed and slept very well. The next morning, we uh, got together with uh, our um, translator and our minder and our driver, and we went to our first meeting. As we were going to the that first meeting, our, our minder turned around and he said to us, you know, um, uh, I, I want to make sure that you, uh, you know, you, you take this first, this first meeting we're having, the Ministry of Health, I think, uh, very seriously. And we said, well, of course, we, we're actually, we're, we're looking forward to this. And he said, you know, the, the minister is, is, you know, not, not always so uh, enamored of Americans. Americans have come here and made various promises and have not kept to them. Uh, so I want you to, to make sure that you're, you're sincere with, with the ministry. And we said, yes, yes, absolutely. We will be as sincere as possible. And he said, I want you to, to, to promise that you will not indulge in any mumbo jumbo. And he used that phrase. And, uh, <laughs> and I, we never heard him use that, those words before. It's a rather unusual American phrase that, you know, basically is a synonym for nonsense. But it also happened to be a phrase that we had used the night before in our conversation. Now, it, it was so striking uh, that he used the word and he emphasized it in that way that we, of course, immediately thought, oh, they must have heard us somehow. Now, 
how did they do that? Did they do that? Could it have been possible? I have no idea. Um, uh, I can say, however, that in an atmosphere of total surveillance, you tend to believe that uh, everything uh, everything is possible. Every form of surveillance is possible. Even mind reading is possible because you are basically t- transformed into the most paranoid uh, version of yourself. And the minder, now he could have been simply warning us, you know, you, ha- you have to be more careful. He could have just been innocently using a phrase and we completely misinterpreted it. But the bottom line is uh, that going forward, we certainly never did that again. <laughs> Why do you think the North Korean state feels a need to surveil even those who are there to help its people? Well, I think they feel justified in doing so because they worry about outsiders um, engaging in all sorts of different kinds of behavior, going from the perhaps the most innocuous, which would be, say, having a little chat with a kid on the street, to something considerably more serious uh, from their point of view, which would be espionage, uh, gathering information about North Korea that could be used or weaponized by an adversarial government. In other words, they are paranoid, um, but they would say they have good reasons to be paranoid, uh, that they have, there have been any number of examples in the past of um, whether it's, you know, flights of American planes with uh, gathering information about North Korea or spy ships, perhaps uh, gathering information, uh, people going to North Korea that perhaps were, if not agents of the U.S. government, who knows, but perhaps sharing information with the U.S. government upon their return. Um, So North Korea as a, as a government, when it comes to foreigners, I think their paranoia is instrumental. The paranoia with respect to its own population is, is a different matter. I mean, I think that has more to do with the fear of um, dissent, a fear of um, uh, factionalism, um, even among so-called loyalists, factionalism within the party. And so I think there are two different kinds of of paranoia, if you will. Is the North Korean government its own worst enemy? That's a good question. Um, I mean, if you look at the last 50 years or so, obviously there was the Korean War, uh, and that that took a heavy toll on North Korea. uh, There were subsequent um, clashes with South Korea, uh, as well as a history of Kind of intrusions of South Koreans going north, just as there were intrusions of North Koreans going south. Uh, and so, yes, there were uh, there were definitely external enemies that were significant for North Korea. But the North Korean government, yes, it, it could have made things a lot easier for itself. Uh, in other words, say between 1966 and 1976, one could easily say that the Chinese government uh, and the Chinese kind of ideology was its worst enemy, that the Cultural Revolution was not was no uh, external uh, force, um, uh, no invasion, no uh, ideology coming from the outside. It was, it was produced purely by the Chinese Communist Party and its fervor, uh, government directed by Mao, but then, you know, completely fell out of his control. Uh, but after that, after 76, China embarked on a very different path and uh, ceased being its worst enemy. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not like things are, are perfect in China or even necessarily wonderful in China, but certainly better than uh, during the Cultural Revolution period. North Korea, on the other hand, has not really, the government has never really taken that path. It's in, engaged in reform, yes. Uh, but it hasn't engaged in the kind of reform that would really allow or uh, permit the government to relinquish the kind of authority that has placed it in this position of uh, of worst enemy to itself. What do you believe uh, gives the North Korean government its internal legitimacy to keep it going, holding, uh, wielding that authority? Well, it's certainly not communism. Uh, communism, I don't think, ever really had much of legitimacy as a ruling ideology. And I don't think it's Juche per se, because Juche as an ideology is rather amorphous. And, and flexible. Exactly. But I think bottom line, it's nationalism, and it has been nationalism since the origins of, of the North Korean state. And there have been a number of important studies about you know, North Korea's use of 
anti-Japanese ideology as a kind of unifying force within the country in the early years. Certainly has used anti-South Korean um, ideology, anti-American ideology, even to a certain extent anti-Chinese ideology. Uh, all of which I think at, at root is is nationalism, uh, a belief that North Korea represents a pure version of, of Korea, and that um, the North Korean variant of this nationalism is a, an important alternative to uh, what anybody in the region, or frankly, ever in the world has produced. I mean, that's its kind of raison d'etre. And I think a lot of people in North Korea certainly saw Kim Il-sung as the embodiment of that uh, Korean nationalism, less so Kim Jong-il, perhaps even less so Kim Kim Jong-un, but nevertheless, the system itself still uh, exerts a certain kind of uh, pull on people in North Korea based on nationalism. Should the leaders of North Korea be held accountable for their policies and actions? And if so, how would that work? That's a very difficult question. And I think ultimately there's going to have to be some kind of a trade-off in which the kind of justice uh, that many people would like uh, to see with respect to the North Korean leadership, that they are held accountable for human rights violations, etc., um, that that will have to be balanced against a desire for change in North Korea, number one. Number two, reunification with South Korea. And number three, integration into uh, the region. Now, all of that could be accomplished, one could imagine, in one scenario, with uh, the collapse of North Korea and the, the regime's leadership being held accountable. But looking at how other um, governments have gone through that process, other countries have gone through that process, we see instead a, a, a trade-off that, that is made um, such that uh, maybe some, a couple of the leaders will be held responsible in that situation. Perhaps none of the leaders will be held uh, accountable, and instead they'll be uh, issued a soft landing, all in exchange for their relinquishing of power. Um, sort of an, an idiom in holiday house in Saudi Arabia kind of style. Exactly. And now, you know, I, I think that's ultimately a decision that the Koreans, all of them, are going to have to make. And it's a very difficult decision. You know, and, and Germany had to make that decision with respect to uh, destossification of the society. Uh, Iraq, with respect to debathification of society. The, the more thorough those processes are, sometimes, as in the case of Iraq, uh, the greater the turmoil, the, the more difficulty that the society has in maintaining any kind of stability after regime change. How was your show received in Washington? What was the response from the audiences? Uh, generally very good. Um, I, I can't think of any anybody who walked out, uh, although there may have been somebody who came there thinking it was going to be something else. They <laughs> so don't remember anybody walking out. I'm out I'm, I'm, looking at the audience all the time. So I'm tracking that. I'm surveilling them, if you will. Um, and I, I had, uh, after each show, I had someone um, from the Korea policy community or the Korea, Korean American community come and, and have a discussion about the, the content and the themes of the show um, and add their particular expertise, whether it was about North Korean fiction or about uh, journalism in North Korea. Uh, there were really some interesting um, conversations after the show. And, you know, pretty much everyone stuck around for those conversations, which for me is always a, an indication that, that they at least uh, in part <laughs> enjoyed the show and wanted, wanted to continue the experience further. Now, I've got um, a grab bag of other topics and questions to uh, to try to get through with you, but I'm conscious that we're already halfway through the interview. So I'm going to see how far we can get, and then I, I may have to call you uh, some t a few months from now to come back for a part two. How do you feel about that? I would welcome it. Wonderful. All right, so let's go into it. Uh, so I notice among progressives that there's often a focus on the bombing and destruction of North Korea by the United States during the Korean War. Uh, I watched, for example, an old video of yours on YouTube from October 2017 titled John Pfeffer and the North Korean Nuclear Conflict, in which you give some familiar quotes from Curtis LeMay about the destruction of North Korea and showed some North, uh, Korean War footage. And the sense I get here uh, is that North Korea is still afraid, still traumatized, 
since that war in 1953 and that it lives in constant fear of attack from the United States. And yet if you look at North Korean cultural production, whether that be movies, texts, speeches, etc., it really downplays this element of almost having been, quote, bombed into the Stone Age, unquote. And rather than expressing fear, North Koreans express a desire for revenge. And that's something that North Korean defectors also attest to as well, that it's not fear but hatred, anger, aggression, a desire to strike back. How do you square that away? I think that's that's correct. I do think that there is an anger uh, coming from North Korea. The reason why I think there is fear, but it's not necessarily expressed, is because fear would reveal a, a degree of weakness. The North Korean government is not um, de delighted to talk about what happened during the Korean War when the government was basically reduced to you know, a basement, you know, up in the, the north of the country on the Chinese border. And if it hadn't been for a million Chinese volunteers, North Korea would have been wiped off you know, the face of the map. That's not something that North Korea likes to talk about a great deal, neither to the outside world nor to its own citizens, nor does it necessarily want to project a uh, an image of itself being fearful that that would happen again. Uh, fear is uh, is something that would reveal, frankly, how weak North Korea truly is. And I do believe, frankly, that North Korea is quite weak when it comes to its military prowess. Um, sure, it can do a lot of damage. It has a putative nuclear arsenal that of, you know, we don't know how, uh, how effective it can be, but it certainly serves as a certain deterrent uh, purpose. But if we look at you know the, the amount of money North Korea can possibly spend on the military, uh, if we look at how outdated its military hardware is, in, we're talking conventional hardware here, uh, if we look at the numbers of comparison between North Korea and South Korean military, North Korea is completely outgunned. There's good reason for it to be fearful, and yet to admit that would be, a, frankly, to admit that it is at a significant disadvantage. Anger, on the other hand, is not uh, necessarily, except if you're a psychologist, any example or any, um, it doesn't reveal weakness. Anger is simply a desire to project strength uh, in, in revenge. So I think that's, that's how I would square the two. They, they coexist, but the North Korean government would prefer to emphasize the anger rather than the fear. Yeah, it's interesting that even the um, Museum of American Atrocities in Shincheon, which I confess I've not been to, but I have read the the pamphlet that they sell uh, about the uh, the museum, and I, I know you've been there because you talked about that in your uh, in your show. Uh, that that museum tends to focus on small scale personal inhumanities, you know, with uh, large pa paintings of U.S. soldiers uh, torturing Koreans, throwing babies down wells, rather than nationwide carpet bombing, napalm. Um, uh, etc., you know, that kind of thing. That's correct. And I, I think it's permissible for the North Korean government to, to demonstrate how weak Korea was prior to 1945, whether it was, you know, Korea being savaged by Japanese colonialism or, or other kind of colonial influences uh, in the 19th century. That's fine, you know, that, because that wasn't the communist state. After 1945, it's a different matter, um, and certainly even during the Korean War, it was a different matter. Let's uh, talk about the uh, North Korean nuclear weapons program, which you alluded to uh, just a couple of minutes ago. If you go back to the 1980s and 1990s, and even up until the time of your three visits with the American Friends Services Committee, North Korea publicly avowed that it did not want to have nuclear weapons, that it was opposed to nuclear weapons on principle, that nuclear weapons should be nowhere near the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Kim Il-sung promised before his death to Jimmy Carter that North Korea did not want, did not seek nuclear nuclear weapons. Then later on in either 2000 or 2000, sorry, 2002 or 2003, depending on when you're counting, North Korea confessed that it did want nukes and later that it was prepared to use them. And in 2006, of course, there was the first nuclear test. And in 2012, a new constitution was promulgated that included a statement that Kim Jong-il had transferred the country into an undefeated country with strong political ideology, a nuclear power state, and invincible military power. That's quite a transformation from uh, opposition on principle to uh, including it in the Constitution. What do you make of that? I guess the real question is how sincere was North Korea prior to its um, 
it's building up its nuclear program. How sincere was it? And that's a tough question. I mean, I, you know, it's a state and states act in their own interests. And if they think that a weapon is necessary for their survival, they will pursue that uh, weapon even as they are lying about it. Um, and North Korea is certainly not the only state to have done that. We have the example of Israel, um, certainly India and Pakistan pursued their nuclear programs secretly. And all the, all the while, you know, making various professions uh, of peace and regional uh, cooperation. I'm not sure what was going through Kim Il-sung's mind in, in you know, his discussions with Jimmy Carter. I don't know really the, what was going through the minds of North Korean leadership in the 90s after his death. I would say that there's, there would have been a good possibility that North Korea uh, would have traded its nascent nuclear program for something at that stage uh, if it thought that the something was really worthwhile. Uh, that it could always have kept, you know, the, the nuclear program in the back of its pocket, you know, in, in much the same way, you know, the, the, what we call resource, recessed deterrence, what Japan has. Japan has a nuclear complex. It produces enough nuclear fuel that could uh, you know, power uh, an actual um, military uh, nuclear component, uh, but it has not obviously done so. It could if it Felt it had to within, you know, six months to a year is, is the estimates I've seen. Which so is a long North, time in wartime. It is a long time, absolutely. But if if Japan, for instance, were to see a, a deterioration in the geopolitical situation and, and could no longer rely, for instance, on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, then it presumably would have enough time. If war had actually broken out, then all bets are off. My guess is that North Korea would have been satisfied with that kind of a situation. If, again, if it got what it wanted, which at the time in the 90s uh, was a civilian, a much better civilian nuclear capability, as well as you know the, the promise and the expectation that it would be kind of ushered into the, the global economy. Uh, but when that when those hopes did not materialize, when the when nuclear plants were not built, and there were a lot of reasons why it weren't, it wasn't just the United States or South Korea who de defaulted on their promises. But uh, and when North Korea got no closer to the global economy, and in addition, when they saw the kind of um, uh, the changed geopolitical calculus that the United States was operating under, um, you know, with respect to Yugoslavia, with respect to Iraq uh, and Libya, then it made a different set of calculations about what was necessary for state survival. Now, it's the, uh, the, the policy of the United States of America, South Korea, Japan, even the United Nations Security Council that North Korea should denuclearize, must denuclearize. Is this, in your opinion, a goal that can be achieved? And if so, how can North Korea best be moved in that direction? I think it is a worthwhile goal. And indeed, I support the denuclearization of all countries as laid out in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So, so does North Korea, I might add. Yes. Um, whether North Korea uh, at this point in time can be persuaded to denuclearize, uh, I'm relatively skeptical. However, uh, again, I think that if North Korea is given a, the kind of package it's looking for, and, and at this point, what it's looking for, frankly, is capital. I would say that you know the, the economic system in North Korea is basically capitalist, uh, a variant of, of state capitalism with private markets, etc. Uh, but it's completely under-resourced, under-capitalized. It needs capital to have true capitalism. And so that's what it's looking for. It's looking for capital. If it can uh, gain uh, some assurance that that capital is forthcoming, then perhaps it would uh, begin the path towards denuclearization, ultimately. Now, uh, as for whether it, what's feasible and worthwhile, that combination, <laughs> I would say, you know, that the United States and China basically launched uh, into their detente process in the 1970s when China already had acquired nuclear weapons, it acquired nuclear weapons in the mid-60s, the detente process actually had been embarked upon when China was still in its cultural revolution phase, though perhaps not the worst of it, but still, formally in the cultural revolution. And Mao, on top of things, was growing ever more senile. So it wasn't like we were dealing with the, the most responsible of world leaders. 
And yet, uh, we went ahead and negotiated what I think was a very effective uh, detente. There are a lot of problems with it, but nevertheless, uh, and it didn't require China to denuclearize. We were happy enough that China's nuclear arsenal was small and had basically a deterrent capability and, and really no um, didn't have any prospects of, of uh, reducing our deterrent capabilities. But my guess is that North Korea is basically in the same position as, as China was uh, at that time. It has a, a relatively small arsenal that really doesn't mat- count for much in, in terms of world nuclear arsenals. Uh, its leadership is, uh, I would say, more sensible than Mao Zedong was at that point. Uh, its overall political system is more stable than China's was during the Cultural Revolution. And there's really no reason for us not to negotiate in the same kind of spirit other than, uh, you know, some some concerns about North Korea's trustworthiness and its, its ability to, to hold to agreements. Um, but, you know, I would point out in that regard that North Korea, at least, has, has had only three leaders in its, its lifetime. So it has a rather uh, good record of continuity in policy. We may not like the policy, but it's been continuous, more or less. We, on the other hand, in the United States, have elections every four years, and our policy zigzags tremendously. It, I, I worry about our commitment to any side of a situation, just as, I, as we've seen with the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. So that's, for me, the, the greater concern. When Stephen Began gave a speech at Stanford University two years ago, he seemed to be offering uh, you know, a conciliatory line to North Korea, step by step, little by little, a phased approach, lots of positive packages. Did you cheer this on at the time? Yeah, I mean, and I cheered on uh, Trump's more personal diplomacy as well, even though I'm not a fan of the president and uh, and virtually all of his foreign policy. But I feel like in both cases, either a, a, a well-thought-out, comprehensive policy approach to North Korea or a more personalistic uh, reaching out to the leadership of North Korea can change the dynamic in a way that can push negotiations forward. If we continue to hold to our previous positions, which was not step-by-step, step, but basically North Korea having to get rid of its entire nuclear program before we even offer anything at all, or uh, a policy of strategic patience in which we basically turn the screws on North Korea and expect that at some point they'll cry uncle and come to the negotiating table and do what we say, I don't think either of those have proven to be effective. Well, let's also bring in the element that you just mentioned earlier about North Korea needing capital, uh, that it, it, it's uh, it's lacking that. Uh, in that personal diplomacy, that first summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un in Singapore, uh, there was that video that Trump showed. Do you remember the uh, the short video uh, basically showing the, the, the sunlit golden uplands that North Korea could become if capital were allowed to flood in and that the United States was based. This seemed to be on the table. You know, that uh, video was not cooked up by somebody overnight. Uh, that, that would have taken some time to prepare. So what's gone wrong? It seemed like all these things that you're suggesting uh, were, were, were there, were on offer. Uh, it, it hasn't gone the way we had hoped. Why? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I would say I actually enjoyed that video a great deal. It was mocked mercilessly here in, in the United States as being, you know, just a, a, a ridiculous advertisement um, cooked up by folks in the Trump administration who knew nothing about North Korea. But I actually think it was it was a, a, a very smart presentation that was well calculated to appeal to Kim Jong-un, especially, uh, you know, given Kim Jong-un's uh, emphasis on the Wonsan projects, on tourism. This was all well and horses. Exactly. Um, but what went wrong? I think what, what's gone wrong is that there, there's been um, a real disconnect between what Trump imagined uh, was possible and what the foreign policy establishment was willing to uh, go along with. And when I say foreign policy establishment, you know, it's basically the blob and what, you know, uh, Barack Obama used to refer to uh, negatively as the blob. In other words, a foreign policy consensus in Washington, D.C. that's quite conservative. And I don't mean conservative politically. I mean conservative in the sense of being cautious. Uh, and I think Trump was 
wanted to be much bolder, much more dramatic, wasn't necessarily in full control of the facts or full command of the information about North Korea, but he had a, a kind of gut instinct about, you know, about the grand gesture with Kim Jong-un. And that disconnect between the grand gesture and, um, and the, the actual policy details, I think that's where the problem lay. In a piece that you wrote for the South Korean Hangyore newspaper on August 9, 2018, you write, quote, Kim Jong-un must understand that dealing with Trump is a lot easier than negotiating with whoever comes after Trump. If Kim wants to change U.S.-North Korean relations, he has a two-year window of opportunity, unquote. Now, those two years have almost elapsed. Trump doesn't show much desire to expend more political capital on North Korea with the presidential election coming up and, of course, also with the current coronavirus crisis. But Kim Jong-un also doesn't seem to be too anxious. He's testing some missiles. He's having his sister make some angry statements about South Korea in which she referred to Seoul's presidential office as, quote, mentally challenged and liking it to a frightened dog and other bizarre wordings. How do we interpret that? Did he not get the message that he really should hurry up while Trump's in office? Well, this is actually, you know, Kim Jong-un's version of hurrying up. I know it doesn't sound that way, but... But when Began was here just late last year saying, hey, we'll meet, let's talk, let's get it on, uh, you know, there was no response. That's correct. Now, that particular incident, I, I, I can't explain, you know, what was going through the North Korean leader's mind other than perhaps simply disappointment at what had uh, not transpired in U.S.-North Korean relations. I can say, however, that based on the past, whenever North Korea wants to get U.S. attention, this is exactly what it does. It engages in testing, uh, harsh rhetoric. Uh, I know that from an American policy-making perspective, seems completely odd uh, and counterproductive. But the North Koreans, well, I mean, they they can point to evidence to the contrary that uh, making a big fuss like this ultimately does from their point of view, scare the Americans back to the negotiating table. From On the American side, yeah, you're right. Trump is not interested at the moment. Um, and I don't think he, even before the coronavirus uh, erupted, was he interested in expending any political capital between now and the elections on North Korea. However, I do think if he is reelected, and up until the I would have said uh, up until looking at polls here in the United States, he had less and less chance of being reelected as a result of the coronavirus. But some of the more recent polls suggest that his uh, approval rating has ticked upward and, uh, and a majority of Americans approve of his job performance with respect to the coronavirus, which I find troubling and unbelievable. But anyway, uh, if he is reelected, um, he may, in fact, uh, turn back to places like North Korea or Kosovo, the, the places where he thinks that uh, he can make a difference, uh, he can uh, repudiate the legacy of his predecessors, and he can achieve a Nobel Peace Prize. If he is not reelected uh, in November, and we have, for instance, a, a Biden presidency, expect, at, at, at the beginning at least, the same pattern we've seen all along, which is a, uh, a belief somehow that um, uh, containment will bring North Korea back to the table, a belief that China uh, will uh, be able to put pressure on its putative ally uh, to change its behavior, and that, uh, you know, if we put the, the brakes on South-North uh, cooperation, that too will isolate North Korea. And that hasn't happened. That hasn't uh, worked in the past. And with the Bush administration, with the Obama administration, it was always followed by some form of reaching out to North Korea at some point, a year later or two years later. In the second term. Exactly, in the second term. Now, I'm going to have to ask only one more question because I, I'm running out of time here in the studio, uh, and then we'll have to leave the other ones till our, our, uh, uh, our second interview. Uh, let's talk very briefly about human rights in North Korea. Now, you don't try to minimize the situation in North Korea, nor do you have a, a dismissive attitude towards North Korean defectors and their testimony about what's wrong in that country. How can the lives of ordinary North Koreans be improved? And what's the level of responsibility and agency of the North Korean government to do that? That's an excellent question. And I guess I would divide the category of ordinary people into two. Uh, and that is the people who are in the most vulnerable uh, situations, those who are in labor camps, for instance, um, or otherwise uh, politically isolated uh, within the country. 
and then the citizens in quote unquote good standing. Um, they, they're not part of the elite. They're not part of the political or the business elite. Uh, they're just kind of ordinary folks going about their, their jobs. Um, with respect to the sec, the second group, uh, the citizens in good standing, uh, my feeling is that uh, any kind of economic engagement policy that reproduces the effects that we saw with China in the 1980s and 1990s uh, would have the best results for the, the larger group of North Koreans uh, and, and improvement in their economic situation and eventually as well their political situation, not dramatically, but with a, a degree of, of uh, greater freedom uh, within the country. The first category of folks, the, the folks who are the subjects most frequently of human rights reports, that's the toughest one. And ordinarily with other countries, name and shame tactics have uh, proven at some point or another effective, that the governments of uh, repressive um, countries or the, you know, the repressive governments of these countries uh, are shamed into either releasing people or changing the, uh, the prison system in some form. North Korean government has been singularly resistant to name and shame tactics, it seems, for the most part. So the question is, what can we do for those folks? I, and I do believe that continuing name and shame uh, tactics is appropriate uh, with the hope that at some point they can be successful. Um, but I, I think that uh, we have to begin exploring other uh, methods of, of reaching those populations. And, and it's the hardest one. And I really don't have many good suggestions for that. But, um, but I do think that even in, uh, in an engagement, uh, a kind of principled engagement scenario, as for instance, Europe conducted in uh, the the 90s, uh, 2000s more, um, they were able to get kind of the, these questions onto the table for discussion, uh, even if they didn't necessarily make a lot of progress. I do think that it ultimately, at some point in those conversations, uh, we can see some progress, even for that first category of folks. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to have to end there. Uh, don't hang up yet because I've got to read the the outro. Uh, thank you once again for joining me today, John Pfeffer, and we do look forward to having you back on a, a future podcast episode. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also consider be, uh, buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. <laughs>